112 episodes of Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin, Barry, and Lou out there in the Bay Area. Yes, 212 episodes. It is the most popular episode, the most popular podcast on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Barry, do you know how I know that? How would you know that, Jeff? Because I understand through the grapevine that various and sundry other podcasts Maybe trying to imitate us in certain oh. ways. I've just heard things. That's all I'm going to say. Welcome, welcome, uh, as they say, welcomen. That's my uh, my quasi German there. So on today's exciting, jam packed episode, breaking capable about it and Barry. You know, I realized recently that the way we used to open the show, we used to say, uh, here on Breaking Kayfabe, we break Kayfabe on sports, movies, television, pop culture, and life. And I realized when I said that, Barry, that we haven't done a sports talk lately. So on today's jam-packed episode, besides your match of the week, the last match from 1997, the number five match in the Wrestling Observer uh, Match of the Year category, besides that, besides doing, oh, let's see, a little This Week in CWF, besides talking a little... Oh, Barry Rose's very, very favorite subject, weddings. Oh, oh. Barry Rose can be talking about a wedding he attended and his special date that he took with him. Yep. Uh, and I'm going to be throwing a couple other things at them. But before we start, we're going to do a little sports talk. By God. So for John Lee out there in where, Barry? He is in Wales. Wales. So, John, uh, you might want to fast forward because I don't know if you'll know this American. We're not going to be talking about the Premier League and all that such nonsense. Uh, but we're going to talk a little sports so, Lou, join us, if you will, for this particular segment, because Lou is a go-to guy when it comes to baseball. And I know right now we got the uh, the ALCS, we got the, uh, the the National League. I think I fucked that with ALC. Yes. Okay, so the NLCS. So, sweet Lou, I know you are probably still pissed off at that umpire and the final game of the series with the friggin' Dodgers. Lou, your thoughts. <sighs> Gabe Morales. He is sons of bitches. He's the new number one heel in the territory. Now, is he, he has go away heat with me, man. Okay. So is he worse than what's that other umpire that always calls a well, shitty game? Angel, Angel Hernandez, who, who happened to be on the same crew yeah, well, uh, umpiring amazing. the NLDS. So uh, now, now that you've vented a little bit at, at that son of a bitch, we're down to four teams at the time of this recording. Could be different by Tuesday. Lou, give us your picks on who you think is going to the World Series. Not who's going to win, but who's going. Uh, as it is now, in the AL, boy, these have been just a series of lopsided games. Yes, no close games here. Yeah, none at all. So we'll see who bashes the hell out of whom in the next couple of games. But, yeah, sadly, I would not be surprised if the trash tros, uh make it back to the World Series. Although I, I am rooting for Dusty Baker. Former Cubs manager, I know, yes. And Giants. And Reds. I, I, and Nationals. But, I, yeah. I think, is there anyone in the National League he hasn't coached yet, by the way? So, uh, okay, so you got the Astros. So, now, what about uh, whether it's the hated Dodgers or the Bravos from here in Atlanta? Who are you yeah. going for there? My team loyalties are as such. Number one, Giants. Number two, A's. Number three, National League. Number four, American League. Number five, anybody but the Dodgers. I think we've been made clear who, uh, <laughs> who is rooting for 
Uh, you know, I, I, I got to tell you when the, this thing's like, because again, I, uh, I'm like you, Lou, not a fan of the Astros, those cheating, scummy Astros, uh, not a fan of the Dodgers. Because every time the Cubs ever went against the stinking Dodgers, it seemed like they would lose in the playoffs to them. So I was going to root for your Giants if they made it past. But alas, no. So now I'm forced to root for the uh, for the Bravos here in Atlanta. Uh, Red Sox, I know we got a lot of listeners up there, but I'm conflicted. I, I'm conflicted. I'm kind of hoping it's going to be the Braves versus Red Sox. That will be the least objectionable series. Oh, my God. If it's the Dodgers and Astros, I may just have to not even look in to see what the score is, Lou. What do you think? Uh, I, I'd probably be right there with you in terms of indifference. Yeah, I I can only root for America's team, as yes. Ted Turner liked to call them. <laughs> and no sights of uh, uh, no signings of uh, Glenn Mother Hubbard, uh, Gene Garber. Oh, we're hearkening Bob Horner on third base, Dale Murphy. Oh, those were the days. So anyway, now, Barry, it is time to turn to you, our resident basketball guy. I got to say, though, as as I was listening to Lou, Lou's going – uh, this team, uh, the NL, and I could swear I, I was hearing Lou put in like Edie Amin. I, I was gonna anybody but the Dodgers. Yes, I don't care. number seventeen, Paul Pot. <laughs> right, number Pot eighteen, Joseph Bobby. Stalin. Dodgers, <laughs> yes, that's mm. awesome. <laughs> Slightly in front of Himmler and Hitler, yes, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's a push though. So. Yes. Now, Barry, let's talk <laughs> NBA talk. Uh, the season recently starting last night's game. Did you get to see last night's game between the Knicks and the Celtics? I only saw a couple of minutes. I, I actually had some. I, I have to confess, I watched the highlight package uh, that was put out. But they say here it was like literally the first game of the season for both teams. Yeah. And it may have been the game of the year. Double overtime. Yeah. 138-134, like the guy, uh, what is it, Brown, uh, uh, Jalen Brown for the Celtics, just lighten up the scoreboard, 46 points. Two Knicks guys with 30 points, uh, Evan Fournier and Julius Randle. Who do you like coming out of the East this year, Barry? Give me a little early season. <sighs> and I will tell you, too, as, you, as you're talking about that game, the greatest game that I ever saw live, and I was at the NBA Finals in 94 as a vendor. I actually, to get in the garden, I was friendly with somebody whose brother was a vendor and I was like, you got to get me a, a job. So, you know, I didn't need it. But at the same time, I was able to go to the NBA finals, which at the same time on the off nights, I was able to go to the NHL Stanley Cup finals, which were the Rangers that year. So that was a big deal. But the Halcyon greatest, days in the Big Apple. It is, though. And I, and I was thinking about that prior because I'm I'm not as enthused for I remember. I remember in 1996 when the season was starting and I think I had every newspaper or magazine devoted to the season. I could tell you every player, what everything. And certainly over the years that that's dwindled a bit, but the greatest game I ever saw live Jeff was a Knicks. This would have been, I guess it was 96 Knicks versus San Antonio in the garden triple overtime nice. and it really and it was just a regular season game but holy shit triple overtime so exciting so for the east for this year so a lot of people are predicting the nets and there's there's you know and certainly there's a lot of talent i think Kyrie irving is uh, a real wild card there i do not expect him 
to be with the team this year at all. Uh, I don't know if you know the circumstances or I've followed heard, it. I've heard I the story. definitely don't want to get into it right now. <laughs> you, you certainly, between that and the Ben Simmons stories, if you turn on ESPN, that takes up a good 45 minutes of the broadcast. You, am yeah. I correct there? It, absolutely. It's almost the entire broadcast. And because I live in Philly, fuck Ben Simmons currently. It Wait a just, minute. Hold on. Hold on, Barry. Wait a minute. I'm listening. I'm listening. And Jamie Ward just said the same thing. Okay, go ahead. That's okay. He did. So, uh, so I think the Nets to me are a big variable and it'll be, you know, again, a lot of talent on that team. And I don't think that they're done. I think there's going to be some moves made as they make this, but the Nets have a good chance with that being said, I would not bet against the Bucs, at least at this stage. What the Bucs did last year was a shock, was a surprise, I think. And the Greek freak, you know, this guy, everybody's been talking about him, what, five, six, seven years at this point. And last year is the year you saw, holy shit, this is a, this guy's at a different, this is something completely different than, than what we're used to seeing. I am going to go with the Bucs. I think the Nets are a variable Big question, of course, uh, and I should say, too, I think Atlanta will be somewhere in the playoffs. But the question is, what will happen to the Knicks? Will they make the playoffs or not? You just mentioned his name, and I think a lot of it is Julius Randle. It, it, this is his year. This is the year it's going to happen. This guy, uh, you know, this you talk about a powerhouse that for the next 10, 15 years, somebody who could be something. Julius Randle is it. So I, I think the Knicks have a great chance of making the playoffs. I'd like to see him go to the second round. I don't know about that. I don't know what uh, the Sixers are going to do this year. That'll be interesting to see. But I would put money, at least at this stage, and granted, we're only a, you know, a day or two in, but I would put money on the box from the East. The okay, West, though, hold, hold, on, hold on one second. Sure. Before, before we get to the West, uh, I just want you, Barry, to bow your head for just a second. All right. Listen very closely. Okay. If you listen closely... You can probably, from last night, still hear Dave Flaherty and Ronald you crying about the results of the Knicks and Celtics game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That might be the only time I'll be able to do that because the Celtics did look pretty damn good last night. So I had to give a shout to my boy Lemieux and uh, Flaherty, both big Celtics lovers. So now, Barry, take us out west. Oh, is it going to be King Bron Bron? Beloved son of the worldwide leader, literally, if LeBron goes on the toilet, ESPN feels like they need to mention something about it. Uh, David Steele's favorite NBA player, LeBron, will he take the Lakers to the finals? Ugh, LeBron. <sighs> solid and his son, player. Ronnie. Yeah, solid player, obviously. No pressure on that kid, huh? No, there's, there's, well, you know what? Realistically, there is no pressure on that kid. That, that kid could get fat and go fishing the rest of his life. If, you know, if his parents choose that, that's fine. So the truth is his life is, uh, unlike the rest of us, which who have to go to work every day, I think the James family's probably safe. I, I don't see the Lakers going to the NBA finals. And I, and look, we could talk about a horrific preseason, but I don't always think preseason is such a great gauge of the up, upcoming season. You know, coaches are, are tinkering, coaches are trying things out. So I don't always see it. However, you know, they, they're not that great. And I think last year we, and, and I should say, the, the team that they have reminds me of that Miami Heat team that had every fucking all-star known to man. Remember Gary Payton for one year? And there was a whole bunch of players that they had, and they didn't do well. Or I should say they didn't make it to the finals, which that was the expectation because you literally had a dream team there. With Los Angeles, I just don't know. 
I sometimes wonder, is there too much on that team? LeBron is on the downswing of his career, no matter what anybody says. He is not the best player currently in the NBA. I would give that to Giannis, but... Is he still the best player on the Lakers? Or has the brow surpassed him? Well, I think I, I think I you know I think it it's a different. I'd rather watch the brow at this stage, but I I I think LeBron has got a leadership thing, and at times he's been criticized for lack thereof. But I still think it's LeBron's team, and I think LeBron is hopefully bright enough to realize that uh, with with you know Anthony Davis that you really do have something here, and that he is going to be around after LeBron should be around after LeBron retires. So I, I think, you know, definitely should be more offense for him. And I'll tell you what, Golden State, that's a big variable. So you've got Clay Thompson coming back. He's missed what essentially the last two years with the injury. Steph Curry is still a threat, but he really hasn't had a great team around him. I don't see them going as far. I would say we're looking at the Suns who, you know, for all intents and purposes, they basically, and I love Monty Williams, former Nick. He's the coach. Uh, but and where did Monty play his college ball? Oh, that's yes. Well, and yes, I believe he did. Yes, Thank he you. did. Yes. But literally the Suns, that that was the textbook definition of a choke last year. Like, holy shit. They had that shit wrapped up. And going in, they had momentum. They had everything on their side. And the Bucks pulled out this monumental feat. But I do like them. But I'll tell you, the sleeper, I think, is going to be the Jazz. I think the Jazz have something. I think the Jazz, they were showing great signs last year. There's maturity this year. I think uh, they'll continue. They've always, you know, Utah being such a conservative state, that's they've always been a conservative team. And I think that actually, you know, Jerry Sloan was the coach there for like 40 years. Am I right? I mean, not 40, but 20 yeah, years. Seemingly, yeah. Yeah, seemingly he was. Jerry Sloan was ever because, and I think when Utah gets something that works, they don't rock the boat with it. And I think Utah has something currently, and I think they're smart enough to be able to make this work. So coming out of the West, I'm not going Lakers. I'm not Golden going Golden State. I am going Suns or Jazz. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so that wraps up our <laughs> sports talk segment. <laughs> uh, does that make me Hank Goldberg? Ooh, that's an old uh, WQAM reference. I sir. love Hank Goldberg. Yes. Hammer and Hank. Yes. Can I tell you a great Hank Goldberg story? Oh, please do. So, and this will tie into somebody else that we know whose name we don't mention because he had bad behavior at a fan fest. So you know who I'm talking oh, about? Oh, yes, of course. Yes. So in uh, 2000 and it was either 2004, 2005, 2006. I, I was living in Orlando during that period when I was Manager working. Manager server. I, <laughs> Every city buried name. You fucker. <laughs> I was a, I haven't been, you know, first off, I was a horrific server. How I ever made <laughs> a manager, I have no idea. Uh, I really was bad, but I haven't been a server in years. But I got to tell you, I, uh, I will get right off topic on this. When I talked to a restaurant, about an hour away from where I live, his price point per individual is $95. So hence, and that, that's no alcohol. So hence, a table of four is $380 plus whatever alcohol they spend. Let's, we'll just round that off. Table of four could be 500 bucks. He can't get serving staff to come to his restaurant. Because of the right, the way with staffing issues. So I'm sitting here doing the math as I always do. And I'm going, so I get four tables a night and then I do 20% off of that. That's a couple, that's 400 bucks, right? 
So yeah, fuck. Nice. I was like, and then I asked the guy, I said, would you hire me? I, I don't even want a salary. Like, don't even just let me come work for tips at that point. He said, I'll do it. And then I was like, yeah, you know, right. He could call my bluff and I backed out. <laughs> uh, exactly. So your so, Hank Goldberg story. So my Hank Gold, thank you for keeping me on track. So it was 2004, 2006. And I was in town and I think it had to do with probably my mother's estate, my mother who had passed away. And I was dealing with her estate and she lived right near Hallandale and Cheetahs had Hallandale. There's a, a location in Hallandale. I'm uh, what is this Cheetahs that you speak of, Barry? It's a it's a it's a Howard <laughs> Baum. It's a Howard Baum adult entertainment complex. Check check so <laughs> so i we're gonna get a screenshot of this episode now <laughs> oh yeah so i went into uh and this was like this was probably two or three o'clock this wasn't even like i wasn't i can't use the it was midnight and i was drunk no this was in the middle of the day and i'm going right so i go in and i'm uh you know you just do whatever you're doing in a strip club i had a cocktail there's some dancing going on i look over two seats away on a couch there's fucking Hammer and Hank Goldberg, and I love Hank Goldberg, and he is, he's got a woman, <laughs> so he's sitting in this big, comfy, like, love seat, and a woman is dancing for him, and she has either foot on the armrests with her, <laughs> with her, her vagina. And he's basically seeing which sandwich uh, that she had for lunch. Is yeah, that, pretty is that much, yeah. pretty much. And it's right. In, but he had what made this story so great. And I picture it in my mind. Hank had the biggest fucking smile you have ever seen on your in your life as he's giving her dollar bills during this whole thing taking place. And I, I, I said something to him afterwards. I was like, Hank, huge fan. And he was like giving me the thumbs up, that kind of shit. But he was a big Neil Rogers guy. They worked. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They were friends. And so for me, Hank Goldberg was, you know, and I had I had run into him like at a 7-Eleven buying beer once and this kind of shit. I fucking love Hank Goldberg. Still around, too. Got to be close to 80 now, I think. So for those of you not aware of who Hank Goldberg is, a South Florida broadcasting legend yeah. uh, and on a more national level. Always uh, at the, uh, you know, they did the Kentucky Derby, the yep. Preakness, whatever. He was always the the guy that was there on the track. He was a big horse racing guy. He also, uh, on, uh, I don't know if it was on Saturdays or Sundays during football season, would always be the guy that would say, hey, I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to take uh, Ohio State in four, you know, whatever. He would give you the the number. That's, that's Flaherty talk right there. But um, so, yeah, so he was the guy on ESPN that would always do uh, the, the betting lines, sort of like between. Jimmy the Greek and the guy they have on college football now, I think his name is the bear. Hank Goldberg was always the guy that was uh, telling you what the, uh, the line was uh, yeah. in the gambling parlance. So switching topics here, I try to be as a smooth a transition as possible. <laughs> uh, Barry, I know you're a big fan of marriage and or weddings. You had a terrific date that you took to a wedding the other day and you wanted me to uh, tell the folks about it. So, so why don't you tell us about your date at a wedding? Yeah, it was a, you know, it was really nice. And it was one of those things where, so I haven't been to a wedding, Jeff, since I was at your daughter's wedding. So we are, we're a couple of years, three years, what, three years removed at this stage? It seems that way. Yeah, it's, uh, it, which is crazy that it's been so long at this point. But it was interesting because the days leading up to it, I realized when I moved, I threw out my dress shoes, meaning I had to go get a new pair of shoes for the suit. Then I had to try the suit on, Jeff, to make sure the suit still fit, right? <clears throat> How'd that go? 
So I, I sucked in my gut a bit, <laughs> you know, I was the guy, right. I was sucking it. I was doing the old mill mill Moscaris, you know, where you suck in the gut and puff out the chest, but it did work out. So everything worked out and I brought the lovely Zoe as my date. And this was, this was a real, I, I guess I didn't realize it at the time, how impactful this night was going to be for me, but it was. So I picked up Zoe. She, I, I picked her up at her house and she just was stunningly beautiful. And, uh, the first moment I saw her, I was just like, Oh my God. And I should say too, Zoe has, uh, she's become a vegetarian and, uh, Zoe for the last couple of months has been, you know, just really a kind of a life change in some ways. And she just looks and I, you know, I still see her three or four times a week, but she was all dressed up. She looked great. So we made the drive, we get to the estate and the couple getting married really nice couple. They, they technically were already legally married, but this was the reception and their wedding was supposed to be at some point last year. And of course, COVID canceled all of that, but a lot of the wedding venues didn't refund money. They basically let you reschedule instead of returning your money. And that was kind of the policy. And I understand that. So these people wanted to get married, but if they wanted a weekend wedding, I think there was a two year wait at this stage because everybody had grabbed those dates. So they, they opted for a Tuesday wedding, which is kind of unique. So these are really nice people. They actually live in the same apartment complex that I do. And uh, our dogs are great friends. And Zoe had actually babysat their dog multiple times as they were doing stuff for the wedding, going to tastings and dance lessons and stuff like that. So they, they didn't invite me with a date. They invited me with Zoe, which I thought was really great. And, uh, she was so excited. We walked in and they have the little table holder with your names on it, with the table you're at. And of course it said Barry and Zoe Rose. So she, she kept that. She was so impressed by that. She loved that. And it was really nice. They, this was as a wedding, the facilities couldn't have been more beautiful from a food perspective. Holy shit. So they had told me ahead of time that they were really going all out with the hors d'oeuvres and they weren't kidding. There were dozens of different types of past hors d'oeuvres. And then the entire room in the center was built was hors d'oeuvres. And then the perimeter were hors d'oeuvres stations. They're cooking sliders. They're making shrimp scampi, all this stuff. So Zoe saw it. We canvassed the room first to see where we were going to strike. And then we struck and we struck heavy. And we ate and we ate and we ate and we kind of we were joking that, you know, and they had sushi, too. And both of us, we will eat sushi. So we were joking at that point when dinner comes, we're not even going to be hungry. And that was accurate when dinner did show up. So it, that was interesting. We get into the reception room and I got to tell you, just some really great people. They sat us at a table. The guy next to me looking to buy a house in the same area that I am in Florida, eating at the same restaurants, he and his wife. So I, it's like I had a built-in friend and, you know, it was just, it was really nice, but a couple of things really stood out to me. So, and, and I, I mentioned this to you off air and, and I said, I don't know if I'm even going to talk about it, but I, I will. And I thought about it. So since my wife and I split up, I have dated, which is, you know, that's if, if you can read between the lines of some of the stuff that Jeff says on the podcast, pasta, pasta, I, I have dated. Currently, I'm not dating anybody because pasta decided to uh, future endeavor herself out of Pennsylvania and has moved to a different state. But I it, the thing that I think really 
it, it isn't that I've missed my wife. And I really want to clarify that because it was clear to me that our marriage was over. And again, no animosity. We were just really different people. And I think our marriage had ended a few years earlier and we were hoping for a turnaround. But that night, and this was maybe the third or fourth song played, they played what was my wedding song with my wife. And it was the first time, I mean, it's the first time I've heard it at a wedding, you know, first wedding I've been to since I'm essentially divorced. And I, it was, that was just, you know, because I go back and it's as much as I know that I shouldn't be married. I do miss my wife from 20 years ago. You know, I, I miss the person that she was. And, uh, that was difficult because I loved my wife deeply and I loved being married initially and I loved our wedding and you know that she was my best friend by far. It was just, everything was great. So I heard that song and I, you know, it, it was, it was touching. I think I should say. And then when that song ended, it was the time where the father of the bride and the bride have the dance, right? So they, and, and I love the bride and the groom. I love both of them. And they're, she's dancing with her father and then Zoe and I start dancing. And as Zoe and I are dancing, we look over and the father and the daughter are both bawling their eyes out. And I got to tell you, it took everything I had to not start crying on that dance floor. It was such an impactful moment of a father who loved, you, you know, very obvious. You could see how much he loves and adores his daughter and this was the day, you know, and I, I was Zoe and I talked afterwards and I explained it to her and I was like, you know, Zoe, as much as he's crying, I'll, I'll probably collapse on the dance floor when we have our dance, you know, because that's that's how I feel. So are you, you know? saying I don't mean to interrupt your story yeah. that uh, when uh, Zoe uh, is to be given away and you have that father daughter dance, you're not going Van Halen like I did with my daughter. Is <laughs> Well, it won't be my choice. I it was <laughs> entirely Zoe's choice. But it, even the, you know, I, as I looked over, and these were legitimate tears. These weren't the the trickles coming down and somebody wiping away a trickle. Their faces were red. It, this was legitimate. This was legitimate, heartfelt, and sincere. And and it was just one of those moments that I, I'll probably never forget. And I saw the bride today and I started, we were talking and I, you know, I said, yeah, you were stunningly beautiful and just such good people. And, and, and she said, oh, you had a great time. And I said, I did. And I told her, I said, you know, when you were with your dad, that was, that may be something I'll never forget. That was such a moment. And I was getting choked up and she started to cry and it was like, oh my God. And it, you know, it just made me realize it's, you know, I was, I, I watched Zoe when she was born. I was there. I obviously was there for the conception, no doubt. And I, uh, it wasn't, so, uh, never mind. I'll, I'll yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see where you're going. And, but I watched Zoe being born. I was in the hospital I watched her birth. I, I saw her first steps. I was there for the first, you know, whatever it was, I was there, whatever, you know, and the thought, you know, and I, I, I explained this to you and I think I've said this, the fact that I moved out and I now live apart from Zoe, we've become so much closer. You know, you live in a house with somebody, your kids, whatever, a lot. You know, I read a report years ago and it was like the average parent, the average father, I should say, sees their kids seven minutes per day. And I was never that dad. I was always the dad that much like my dad, my dad would work 
12 hour days and then rush home to take me out to wrestling, which was a six hour event between driving and dinner and wrestling. And he would get on four hours of sleep and he did it every week and did it sometimes twice a week. And he put his own health at risk to spend time with me. I mean, that's, you know, that's so that that's bigger than anything. Right. So it's never lost on me that when I do something with Zoe, even if it's just going out to dinner or we go to PetSmart to look at uh, adoptable puppies twice a week, you know, we'll go do that and all the time we spend together. But I, I'm so much closer with her now because the time that we have together is the time that we that we earmark for each other as opposed to, you know, Zoe, where are you going? Oh, I'm going out with my friends or me saying I'm going off to an appointment for work or something. You know, now we'll go and we'll block off anywhere between three and five hours to go do stuff and hang out together. And we have become dramatically closer as if we weren't already close enough, you know? So that's a big thing. And that isn't lost on me, but the wedding was so great. Everything about it was great. And the car ride home, it was one of those where Zoe, we didn't talk a lot and Zoe had to do some schoolwork. This being a Tuesday night, big test on Wednesday. And she has her laptop open and I just look over at her and she looks at me and she smiled at me. And that smile told me everything I ever needed to know in life. And it was just an amazing, amazing moment. All right. So on behalf of the brothership and all those listening, two questions. First of all, was there a photo opportunity and did you take advantage of that? So there was a photo opportunity. I've got several photos on my phone. They also had a photo booth and Zoe and I took eight photos in the photo booth, two of which are borderline inappropriate, unless the middle finger is, is not inappropriate. So, <laughs> well, Facebook, you never know. Uh, you know. Exactly. But we did take, we, we did take a lot of photos. Will you be posting at least one of those <laughs> in the breaking KP with Bowdoin and Barry uh, group? The same day that this podcast drops, you will see a photo of me. I think the brothership will demand that those photos be posted, at least one of them. So second question, you referenced the song that, of course, got you a little, as they say, and only a certain percentage of our audience will understand this word, verklempt. Uh <laughs> What was the song that was playing that got you that way? The, the song that was you and Jennifer's uh, song. Yeah, it was uh, Let's Stay Together by Al Green. Again, so, I'm thinking Al Green versus Tina Turner. Two really solid versions. But Al's, of course, was the original, so I can accept that. And um, was that the song that the uh, the bride and her father were dancing to? No, it was not. So that was, was a, that song had come on earlier. And, uh, I, and I, honestly, I don't even remember what the song was. Because I think once I saw the bride and her father, I think my mind was a complete slate at that point. I was a blank slate, you know? Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, just for the record, uh, my song with uh, the lovely Mrs. Bowden Kim uh, was A Color of My World by Chicago. Beautiful <clears throat> Thank song. You. Where'd you guys get married, by the way? Uh, we got married at the Carolina Club in uh, exclusive Margate, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. That's a, a real joke. But, but it was a very nice yeah. club. It, it kind of looked like it was like on a, a big hill. Uh, it was a like a golf course, country club kind of thing. Sure. But it was a two-story building, which you don't see any of those hardly in South Florida. So it was really nice. Uh, it looked like you were going to like, uh, you know, like um, like some house in a movie or something like that. But that, that was very nice. So uh, bringing to mind my memories 
of when my daughter got married uh, that you referenced earlier. And as great as it was that moment when, you know, of course, I hadn't seen my daughter in her wedding gown and when uh, she got dressed and had the makeup and all that kind of stuff. And I was uh, told by my wife, okay, you can come down, you can see her now. And that moment where I kind of opened the door and saw her and, you know, of course, she looked absolutely breathtaking as any father would think that their daughter did. But as much fun as I had dancing to my with my daughter to Van Halen's Dance the Night Away, to me, my favorite memory of that weekend, and I actually, I was able to take a photo of it, was when we went to the facility where my daughter and her husband, Brandon, got married. And uh, we went to the room and, you know, like the uh, the person in charge of the um, the venue was like, okay, we're going to have tables over here and we're going to be doing that. And my wife and I were talking to the person and Kelly and her at the time, fiance, Brandon were off sort of like where the dance floor was going to be. And we looked and they were the, just the two of them were dancing without any music. And I took a photo of it and I said, you know, I look at this photo and dad here is going to try not to get choked up. That's hard. And I, oh, tell me that. Yeah. And I, and I put the picture up on Facebook and I said, you know, I said, I see the two of them and their futures for good or bad are directly in front of them. And, you know, their life is now, instead of going in two different directions, it's going in one direction together. And, you know, it was just a really, really touching moment that I thought and I was out. I was glad that I was able to, uh, to capture that in a, in a pic. And, uh, so, uh, to send you that pick, I think I still have it somewhere. So now a smooth transition from the wedding talk, of course, is to this week in CWF. Bad <laughs> transition, Barry. So what happened this week in the championship wrestling from Florida archives, Bear? Yeah, this is uh you gotta admit, you're you're gonna get wedding talk, you get yeah, sports old, talk, you sports know talk. This is uh this is a yeah, lot this of this was fun. the originator of this kind of a format, by the way. <clears throat> so you know. That's right. That's absolutely right. So kind of a big week in uh, CWF history. We're looking today, obviously, this being the 26th of October. So why don't we look at this match, which this one really caught my eye. You've got it's October 26, 1970, 51 years ago, which is hard to believe in Orlando, Florida tag titles, Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch defending against Jack Briscoe and Jose Lothario. And what I like about this match Dusty and Dick had just come in maybe two weeks earlier and they got a push right off the bat. You know, even at this stage where they were still maybe two or three, four years max in the business, I think it was 67 or 68 when they started. These guys got a push right off the bat. They got the Florida tag titles, but you've got this really interesting team of Jack Briscoe, who was the top baby face in the state. And then you've got Jose Lothario, who had been a top baby face and was pretty close now to winding up his time in Florida. I, I don't know if we had ever discussed, but Jose was a guy that was a big deal in Florida. And then abruptly his last oh, Jose was a big baby face outside the ring too. Am I correct bear? Well, yeah, I, that's, that's debatable. There were some issues uh, that uh, yeah, that maybe we don't, we don't put publicly out, but Jose, Jose's last match in the state, just to give you an idea. And one of the things about the territories, the time honored tradition of the territory was when a guy comes in, you build him up. So he's hot. And then when a guy's leaving, you cool him off and he does jobs. It's just the nature of the business, the way it used to be. Jose's last match in the state of Florida was a 60-minute draw 
against then NWA World's Champion Dory Funk Jr. So there was no cooling off period for Jose. It was like he was, you know, he was still top of the line right there, but he had some legal issues and he had to vacate the state abruptly and never returned, not even for one match. So that was a shame, but he was a, a big draw. I like this. By the thing. way, if you'd like to hear this story, I would encourage you to go to the CWF Legends Fan Fest, where Barry Rose in person will be able to discuss perhaps the issues that led to Jose leaving the state abruptly. Anyway, please continue, Barry. Yeah, a- absolutely. I would be, or even private uh, message me. I just don't think we should put it out there publicly, <laughs> but it, it, look, it's, this is, these are the facts. So, and I, you know, whatever. Okay. So I'll move on from that. So, uh, we're looking now 1976, same date, 1976 Tampa main event, Jack Briscoe that we just discussed in a taped fist match against Bob Orton Jr. Now, this is interesting to me on a couple of levels, because when you think of tape fist matches, I don't think the names Jack Briscoe or Bob Orton Jr. are probably the first that would come to mind. And I, I have to be honest with you, when you said that, the first thing I thought of was Jack didn't do a lot of gimmick matches, did he? No, he he didn't do a lot of gimmick matches. And remember, Jack didn't bleed. No, no, absolutely. That's yeah. why, you know, and actually kind of like, what's the sense of doing a gimmick match with, with a guy that's not going to do that, you know? Yeah, it, it, well, that's that's especially a tape fist match because the whole idea is to draw blood. So I would have to agree with you. And Jerry Briscoe, when he was in Philadelphia a month ago, w- somehow it came up where he and Jack never bled. And I believe they both only bled once and then decided never to believe. I forget exactly the details, but that's interesting. And again, CWF was funny like that. Like if you look at the list of brass knucks champions, guys like Dale Lewis held the brass knucks title. Dale Lewis, who was, who placed, I think he came in eighth in the Olympics for wrestling. So let, we should make him brass knucks champion, right? So I always found that interesting, but this match caught my eye for, for two different reasons. The next match Missouri Mauler and the Assassin defeat Ray Candy and Norvell Austin. So what caught my eye first off, Missouri Mauler and the Assassin were were brothers. They're had they were half brothers. Uh, rest in peace to both of those guys. But they didn't do a lot of teaming in the state of Florida, just maybe a dozen matches or so. They were primarily almost always singles guys. But facing Norvell Austin and Ray Candy, and why is that interesting to me? Norvell at that stage was working prelims. He was maybe third or fourth match on the card. So he wasn't, you know, he wasn't jerking the curtain, though he did at times, but he was second, third, fourth match. Ray Candy at that stage was a main eventer or semi-main eventer in Florida. But these two guys never teamed together in Florida, but literally four or five years later on TBS, TBS packaged them as a tag team. Do you remember that? I do not know. Yeah. So they put it would remember it was fire up big Ray when they would do, you know, I know Tommy rich also had the fire up, but it was fire up big Ray, but they put together Norvell Austin, who I think they were calling Norvell Austin, the junkyard dog at that stage. I know and, he was the first one to have the junkyard dog, uh, sort of like logo or gimmick or whatever. Yeah. You call it. Yeah. So they put them together and they, I don't think they were being pushed as a main event tag team, but they were on TBS for a month or two you know, working and winning on, I wonder, uh, excuse me for interrupting. I wonder if giving Norvell that name of the junkyard dog had something to do with the fact that of course, uh, in the late seventies and into like 1980, when Herschel Walker was playing uh, there, the university of Georgia's defense was called the junkyard dogs. That's the first time I'd ever heard that expression. 
So I wondered, since they were in Atlanta, if they didn't kind of glom that off the uh, the UGA football team and give that that name to Norvell. And that's 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 excellent context that you've added with that. That I don't know. Norvell was a guy, really friendly guy, and uh, I met him as a kid. I interviewed him, Jeff. He might have been my second or third ever wrestling interview. And if you're <laughs> I at some point I should post these, but they're brutally embarrassing because I was a 12 or 13. Well, was it quite kid. as detailed as the interviews that we did recently with Jacques Rougeau no, it, and it was, Vega? Okay. So mine were mine were a list of questions that a there was never a follow-up question because I didn't know how to think that way yet. So it was like so I, I would say, what's your birth date? You know, I would ask these kinds of questions. <laughs> Where were you born? And then I asked him what's a question. Yeah. And I, I actually still have the audio tape. And if we can figure out how to get the oh, audio tape. I think, I think we need to send that to Lou. <laughs> All right. I'm willing to do this if Lou will get these up. Because I do have a Ray Stevens interview that's a little better than the one I did with Norvell. But I asked Norvell the question. And I had completely taken this from the after magazines, because these were questions they would list. And I said to Norvell, what are your vital statistics? And he, <laughs> he looks at me and he goes, I don't know what, what any of that just meant. <laughs> and I said, you know, like how big are your biceps? These are the kind of fucking questions I was asking Jeff. Is it any wonder uh, that I never went anywhere otherwise, other than this, than this famous Peabody and Sherman award-winning podcast. <laughs> But he was a really nice guy. I, I took a photo, a couple photos with him, you know, I, me wearing uh, the Jimmy Garvin wig. And uh, yeah, just funny, though. Those were, those were good times right there. More uh, more content for the uh, Facebook page. Uh, if you can find it, will we get the Norvell and Barry Rose uh, action shot on the page this week? You, you, so you'll get that. And then I'll, I, what I think we should do is that if I can get some of these interviews and if Lou can really... Lou, can you join us for a moment? Oh, sure. Lou, if you were able to take audio cassettes and somehow convert them, could we put them into a future Patreon episode? It's certainly quite possible. Well, the, Jeff, I think I the public just the heard cash it. registers are ringing. There you go. <laughs> so <laughs> there is a possibility that this can be done. Awesome. Awesome. Mm. So anyway, any more uh, stuff from this week? In Absolutely. So we have got a match that I would have loved to have seen 1977. So a year later than the match we just talked about Texas death match in Miami. So I was there, by the way, no referee inside the ring. Ivan Koloff defeating Pat Patterson. Ooh, that was so, a great match. Oh, that ha it was. And, and I, I don't remember it, but I got to tell you, these two guys were the fucking bomb back in those days. And Patterson and Koloff had formed this great tag team in the state. They both came in within a week or two of each other. Koloff was the Southern champion. Patterson was the Florida TV champion. And collectively, they were the Florida tag team champions. So these guys came in, kind of took over the state, did a great job. They had a falling out. And Patterson, I guess, by de facto became the baby face. The, the feud only lasted two weeks. And I believe Pat moved on to, I think, the AWA, if I'm correct, which, in my opinion, is a very odd thing to do that around October, November, you want to transition to the AWA. That's, you know, well, perfect time to go to Minnesota. Right. Perfect time. Seems like nah, a guy who spent his, you know, the majority of his career in, in California 
maybe we look at Minnesota in April or May or June, you know, but hey, he did it. Anyways, these guys had a great feud. My only thing, it was too, it was too short. Had it gone on a little bit longer, it would have been great. Couple other cards, 1980 Florida title, Dusty Rhodes wins his 122nd Florida title when he defeats Bobby Jaggers. Uh, of the course, hangman. I'm. Yeah, I'm being a little facetious with that, Jeff, but it certainly Dusty was the Florida champion. I believe more than anybody else in the history of the state. Another match that caught my eye and for uh, different reasons, Scott McGee defeating the T-Terror. And why is that interesting? Because T-Terror was a guy named Ted Marshall. He was a uh, a guy that was trained by Cyclone Yeah, well, one of the Legends Fan Fest. Yes, and yeah. he was at the same one that Scott McGee was at. And they were sitting talking to each other. And I, I guess it didn't dawn on me that they had actually worked together a bunch of times. So, and the last match we have, Jeff, and I want to get your opinion on some of these guys. This would be 1986. So this is in the, the slide. I like to call it the slide of death for CD. You know, I, I don't want to keep this upbeat because we need to be really realistic. The slide of death for CWF, October 26th, 1986, some five to six months before the death of the promotion, Barry Windham and Lex Luger defeating Cowboy Ron Bass and Hacksaw Higgins. Do you remember Hacksaw Higgins? Oh, yes. Hacksaw I, Higgins, yes. I, I still remember. don't know what the deal was. I still don't know wherever, where else he's ever worked. I don't know. He, I know he worked Kansas City for quite a while. Did he he okay. did have a run in uh, Mid-South slash UWF, uh, but it was like low uh, to every once in a blue moon work in the mid card, but uh, yeah, not, not a, a super talent by any stretch. Of the, he's a big guy, but n nothing about him stood out. Uh, he wasn't like, you know, he wasn't a fat guy. He was but just he was, large, but he was, well, no, no, he was like guy, large. Right? <laughs> he wasn't like he was large. Calhoun fat, you know, I mean, he, right, he was that's just, true. just like a big guy, but he was certainly not muscled at all. No. And it was, he had a, he had a weird, it was kind of a weird shaped body. He had big tits, Jeff. Let's just put that out there. What I remember about Hacksaw Higgins. What were his vital statistics, Barry? <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea what, what you just said. He had a weird shaped body. It didn't look like he'd ever been in a gym. I do think he was a legitimate badass, though. He definitely gave off this kind of badass vibe. But if you remember his tights, he wasn't wearing, I guess, regular. He was wearing like spandex. So it looked even weirder and it just, yeah, for whatever reason, he didn't catch on anywhere. I think, I, I don't know. I kind of feel if he had spent more time in the gym or just, I don't know, something different, I think he could have done something. But so you and I were talking about Luger last week and we have talked about Luger off air. And I got to tell you, I, what you said, and, and in a second, I want you to refresh everybody as far as what we were talking about but what you said it really caused me to think because again i'm it's a week or two weeks later i'm still thinking about this and it also caused me to look at people different like why don't we look at at zaha who loves luger right and you and i have given zaha a lot of shit for liking luger but if i stop and i break it down and Zaha, Zaha was probably a kid or certainly young enough that when Luger was, had hair, had hair, but when Luger was becoming a star and when he was a star, 
Zaha was young. So that, that for him is a great memory of professional wrestling. And as you and I both know, you know, when, when something affects you in your childhood, you always look at it completely different than reality might. So you and I being adults at that age, we weren't big Luger fans, and rightly so we weren't. But a guy like Zaha looking at Luger and thinking, my God, you know, no matter what he does, whatever his finishing hold was, and I torture rack, I guess, the physique, whatever it was, to him, he Luger might have been the greatest thing ever, you know, and, and that that caused me to think. But what you said, Jeff, and do you want to do you want to say what no, you said? What, what I said was that I wonder if in retrospect, the fact that we disliked Luger, uh, you know, I saw him. He was the guy that sort of in a way exposed the business to me because I knew that no matter how much Bill Apter and the magazines tried to make him out like a big deal, that he was not, uh, you know, immediately they put him above Barry Windham. And I knew that he was not as good as Barry Windham. And so it kind of in a way made me a little bit resentful of him. But I have always said, and I have no problem repeating it, that the Lex Luger from 1988 at Starcade all the way up through uh, Wrestle War 90 the guy was really, really good. Uh, you know, he had he had good programs with Flair. He had good programs with with uh, Steamboat, Pillman, Stan Hansen, uh, all those guys. And then Flair again. They they turned him too many times because he started losing uh, some uh, ability to really connect with the crowd. Either as a heel or a babyface because they kept switching him uh, because of Sting's injury. But I wondered whether or not, uh, you know, some of the other times that we looked at Luger, if we weren't taking into account the fact that we didn't really care for him that much. Now, I, I as you were talking about that, let me give you a, a different scenario and tell me whether or not you think this is similar to the way that somebody the age of Chris might have looked at Luger and like Luger. How about if we go back, oh, let's say 10 years before that, you think about it, other than like Bob Backlund and Bruno Sammartino, the number, you know, the, the guy that was close to the top of the cards in the WWF was Ivan Putsky. Now, let's be honest. Ivan Putsky was never to be confused with being a great worker, okay? But he was a guy that was really over, okay? Whether it was the Polish power or whatever, he was an extremely popular babyface in the WWF. The After Magazines pushed the guy through the roof, just like they did with Luger 10 years later. So, and, and there were some people that said that Eh, maybe he wasn't the most popular guy in the dressing room that perhaps some of the uh, press that he had gotten maybe had gone to his head. Now, I will say that Luger became in the ring, uh, you know, perfectly acceptable, including that two-year run where he was really pretty good. I don't know that Ivan Putsky ever got that way uh, or got there, but comparatively speaking, as a guy that a young kid in 1977 or 78 might have really been into because he saw him in the magazines, compare that to the way Luger was featured in the magazines in the late 80s. What do you think? Yeah, another great... Are, first off, are these all sober comparisons you're coming up with? Or is this uh, like th with alcohol? How do you uh, come I'm up with I have a nice this? Pepsi here, nothing in it. All right, I'm trying to think how... Because this is the kind of shit that I think about if I get high, you know? Like, yeah, well, if we do that Patreon episode where we That's are uh, impaired, that you know, just think of the thoughts uh, that could come out of our mouths. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's that'll be my last day working. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And right. Everything else, uh, the cops will be at my door, et cetera. But uh, so first off, I would, you know, Lex Luger was the greatest professional. Lex Luger is fucking is uh, Kobashi or Misawa compared to Putsky. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Putsky was Putsky was terrible. I, I don't think there's any way around that. And if you loved Putsky as a kid or you love, let's say, Chief J. Strongbow, who was equally maybe a step above Putsky, but not much. But you have these great memories as a child. I absolutely get it and I understand it. But I don't think anybody's ever going to say, did you did you see that Ivan Putsky match? Were we not being fair to him? <laughs> You'll never get that. It just didn't exist. No, I guess I guess I meant in the sense that these were two guys that were pushed to the the hilt by the after magazines and the way that say somebody may have, you know, been a fan of the WWE, like living up in the Northeast at that point might've gone, wow, Ivan Putsky, he's the greatest because he's seeing that in a magazine. And then he goes yeah. to the arena and he's not, uh, does not have the ability to sit there and think, oh, this guy's matches really suck. Exactly. But the way that, you know, 10 years later, if Chris is a young kid with a full, you know, quaff a hair and he watches the match and he goes, wow, Lex Luger, man, I read about him in the after magazine. He didn't say after magazines, but I read him in the magazines and, and wow, this guy is really great. Cause look at him. He's got a great physique and he does the crab pose, by the way, it's seemingly all Luger ever did was the crab pose. But, yeah. um, you know, so I think from that point of view, not having anything to do with whether or not Ivan Putsky ever ended up being as good as Lex Luger ended up being, I think that's a, that's a comparison you could make. It is. And it's look, and, and there were a lot of kids in the Northeast that probably saw Putsky, Chief J Strongbow, and they were their favorite wrestlers. Sure. And, no, no, exactly. Absolutely. And they, they're not looking at match quality. They're they they're waiting for Chief J to start that the war dance. You remember that horrific war dance? Well, you know what, you know what's really funny is since you brought him up, you know, think about it, since we just did this week in CWF, Joe Scarpa was a big deal in CWF in the 60s. Gigantic deal. Yeah. And, and yeah, great good. Uh, you know, who uh, they were recording this is celebrating his 90th birthday. Can happy tell birthday, you, Greg. Yeah. Yeah. That that Joe Scarpa was a huge deal as a babyface in the 60s in Florida. And by all accounts, was probably a pretty damn good worker for the time. But the you know the Jay Strongbow in the early part of the '80s, let's be kind, probably had lost a step or two. I think too, because you go back and and we do have I like to call them the octogenarians that are in our group, but the the over sixty that were there and they were kids. Careful, the over what? What age? The uh, over over, what? Well, I call them over. It's it's sixty to a hundred. It's the over sixty. Let's go sixty one to a hundred. If you get my drift, to Kia Zeo. Oh Kia yes, Zeo. sorry about that. Thank sorry you. about that. I'll even bump that up sixty five and over. Thank you. But, much better. Much yes. better. Uh, but they'll they'll tell you Joe Scarpa was a completely different wrestler than Chief J Strongbow. And as the story goes with Strongbow, McMahon, you know, the senior wanted an Indian. They reached out to Scarpa, and he was at essentially what would have been the tail end of his career was already an older guy at this point putting on weight slowing down so for him this was an extension of his career he made great money uh can't fault him for that and he didn't work the same he was limited you know he used to bust his ass he was rebel joe scarpa or jolton joe scarpa when he was uh in florida georgia and the south and he was a you know he's a tough guy a badass a lot of blood 
completely different than when he was in New York. So, yeah. Putsky, though, and we should say, too, Putsky, I don't think you're going to read or hear this, but uh, I have it on very good authority and very legitimate authority. He's not doing well. And he is, uh, I think it's either Alzheimer's or dementia, but Ivan Putsky is is not doing well at all. And uh, when I saw him, which is probably three years ago, he was he had he was never a tall guy, if you remember, but he had shrunk even more. He looked to be about five two and he had lost all of his body mass. So he looked to be five two. 140 pounds. Yeah, I, I think I saw the picture that you're referring to, and it does. It literally looks nothing like him. You it know? doesn't. It doesn't. And, and uh, yeah, I know that uh, we we had his phone number, and we, we you know, I, I actually tried to reach out to him. The phone number was a cell phone has been disconnected. He is completely off the radar, and I know that he was having issues. So I don't think he's gotten better with those. So we, we only hope for the best uh, for Ivan Putsky going forward. But, Jeff, that's a big day, big day in CWF history. Okay, so let's transition. Since you mentioned Mitsuhawa Misawa a little while ago, what? let's go to our match of the week. This is the match that was voted number five in the uh, Wrestling Observer Match of the Year poll. We are going June 6th, 1997, Mitsuhara Musawa taking on Toshiaki Kawada, his former tag team partner. Barry, you've had a chance to watch this match. And let me just say, holy shit, Barry, the headshots to Misawa. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just mm-hmm. fucking scary. And this is a match, you know, even more than the, the match we've we've done earlier, a couple of weeks ago with him and Kobashi. This match, you know. When you see a guy that is, a, you know, an incredible worker in the ring, a guy that goes out there and gives his all, and you see a move and you sit there and you go, oh, wow, you know, like, like Kota Ibushi will, will do moves that you sit there and you go, holy crap, man, what a bump he, he took there, uh, you know, whether it's to the back or to the neck or something like that. In this match, I counted, and there may be more because it's, uh, you know, I may have forgot to count in the early stage of the match, there were at least five moves where you say, Oh my God, I hope he didn't just kill the guy. So what'd you think of the match bear? Yeah. So it, it is rough to watch in hind. First off, it's a great match. Okay. You're not going to get Misawa and Kawada together and you're not going to have a great match, but it is a little sad because you do watch these, these shots that Misawa and, you know, and Kawada took some shots as well. And he, he doesn't look great these days. Misawa obviously passed away in a fucking wrestling ring. So, uh, so it's a little disturbing to see, but what I liked, I mean, this is a great match and there's just no way it's not going to be a great match, but I like the backstory on this match. And if you know anything about the history of these two guys, they actually went to high school together. They were friends in high school. I think Miss was a year or two older, but they were friendly in high school. And, uh, when they were training, Misawa actually convinced Kawada to go to all Japan instead of new Japan. Apparently, New Japan was his uh, his first choice. Misawa got with him. They decided. And uh, at that point, they they did. I guess the higher ups of all Japan, most likely being Baba at that stage, sent them all across the world. And Misawa went to uh, to Mexico and got some success there. Kawada, as you know, was in Canada. Uh, I believe he worked a little bit in the U.S. He worked Uh, uh, the San Antonio territory. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as part of a uh, tag team, I think. Yeah. Which was brief, though, I think. Too, yes. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Kawada, according to the folklore, Kawada apparently hated 
his time outside of Japan. Masawa didn't, but apparently was always jealous of Masawa. So I think a lot of that was built into this storyline. And, and that's what I really liked about this, too. I, what, what year did they, did they split from each other? Was it like 92, 93, somewhere? Uh, yeah, there? it had to be around. It was the earlier part of the decade, yeah. Because yeah. they, they teamed up for a few years, uh, you know. Because I know that um, Kawada's first partner where he got a push in All Japan was Samson Fuyuki. Uh, yeah. As part of the Footloose, and we've we've done one of their matches before on the show, and then he ends up. Uh, maybe it was around the time that uh, either right before or right after Tenru left to go to uh, the promotion that was just starting out. This is this was like late '89, early '90. There was a promotion called SWS, uh, sure. and then uh, when Tenru left, Kawada was part of Tenru's group, and that's when he became elevated. But not to like Jumbo Saruta status. He became partners with Masawa, and they became sort of like the big uh, tag team when uh, when Jumbo wasn't worried. Jumbo still worked with uh, Yoshiaki Yatsu, but Yatsu by that point had really started to put on weight. I believe, yeah, you're right about that. I believe SWS is where Koji Kateo and John Tenta had a shoot. Remember that? I, yes, I do remember that. That was SWS, right? Yeah, that was a it was a company I remember that was owned by a uh, I don't know if it was an eyeglass company. It's sort of like a you know Bausch and Lom or something like that. They that made glasses and contacts. That's where they had all their capital and their money, and they just decided to uh, start a wrestling company. And the guy that was the face of the company was Tenru, who had been like right. you know, sort of like uh, the main event guy for Baba from like eighty seven through like eighty nine ish and uh, eighty or ninety. And then he left, and I, I boy, I got to tell you, at the time that happened, that was major news because uh, within the culture of Japan, leaving your promotion is just very much frowned upon and, yeah. and seen as lack of respect. I interrupted. Please continue with your no, thoughts. You're, you're good with that. And it, it, if it wasn't SWS, though, I'm thinking it might have been. And SWS actually had some sort of alliance with the WWF at the time. I believe they did, yes. They they promoted a big show in Japan jointly. If it wasn't SWS, it was this other promotion, which was called War, which is a great name until you find out that <laughs> it's an acronym for it's, wrestling and romance. Yeah, which something like that, yeah. Had no made no fucking sense at yeah, all. Lost, lost in translation, just like the Bill Murray movie, right? Yes, very much lost in translation. But this, I mean, great match on this one, too. I don't think Misawa and Kawada had a bunch of singles matches prior to this one. Uh, I know they had had a, I know they had faced off in tag teams. Kawada, if I'm correct, formed a tag team with uh, Taue, right? Holy yeah, team. Taue. Yes. Yeah. And we've talked about Taue. Taue may be the most underappreciated guy, uh, you know, just wasn't as spectacular as the other guys, but yet solid, you know, showed up and did what he had to do. But when this match, I think my overall thoughts, when a match like this comes in fifth, you've got to say to yourself, holy fucking shit. I guess you don't have to curse if you don't want to, but if you want to, you can say that and say, what a year 1997 was for, for professional wrestling. Hence, while Jeff, why Jeff decided to, to isolate that year and why we've been talking about 97 for the last few weeks. It really was spectacular. It was absolutely amazing. Just this, the, uh, the stuff that, uh, was in the observer top 10, there were, you know, 
so many great matches. I, I just uh, I couldn't force Barry to do two matches a week because I'd start getting heat from him. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but I mentioned the headshots, which what happens is Kawada would uh, pick him up, sort of like a version of the Saito suplex, except instead of dropping him either on his upper shoulders or lower neck, he literally drops him on his friggin' head. And you like watch it and you're going, okay, either he has a skull that's made of like granite. He has a, a neck that's like plastic man. That's the first time we've ever referenced plastic man on this podcast here, but you know, uh, or maybe I should have gone Reed Richards from the fantastic four. I don't know, but um, it, you see these moves done and they don't just do it once. It's like the kind of thing where if you see it as the finish of the, the match, you go, holy shit, what a finish of the match. I hope I never see that again. He did it five times. My Peter Brady voice breaking. Um, five <laughs> times in the same match. It's absolutely incredible. And while it's great, it's also so freaking scary that you, if I, I, I think if I had been sitting in the dressing room and, and watch this match, when Masawa came back, I'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? You're going to kill yourself. And he ended up doing that. It's very sad, you know, uh, but I mean, it's just spectacular on just a, a whole different level than shit you see. It's it's not like a, a guy's taking a, you know, we talked about Shawn Michaels taking the bumps into the cage and stuff like that, or, or, you know, somebody getting thrown outside the ring and uh, Sabu does a table spot with him or the Dudley's table. No, this is a guy that like, he looks like he's literally putting his life on the line, taking these bumps. And this is not a case of, oh, Kawada's like some uh, rookie wrestler doesn't know what he's doing and he's dropping him, you know, and he's not doing it appropriately or correctly. There had to be some sort of willingness by Masao to do these spots. And it's just fucking crazy. And, of course, we're, we're going to post a link to the match. And I, I really hope that if you uh, watch these matches when we post them, that you will look out for these spots because there's not one, there's not two, not three, not four, five spots where this guy gets dropped on his friggin' head. And I'm not talking about a pile driver or a, or a stuff powder where you can, to a certain extent, you can, pr can protect the guy. This guy is taking a back, you know, a, a cyto suplex, and it's just fucking scary how this guy absorbs it, and it's terrible. Okay, I'm going to get off that little rant, Barry. No, that was good. And, I, and actually, I, Jeff, I want to throw this in. Sweet Lou checking in via messenger with us. The renaming of war made even less sense. So it went from wrestling and romance to wrestle association R. Well, of course. That, okay. Of course, and then, we, we all understand that. Yeah, yeah, right. Which even makes even less sense. And then he also referenced uh, Hacksaw Higgins. He says, uh, you need to see the Mid-South TV match where Paul Orndorff laid into Larry Higgins for being a clumsy goof. And maybe that was it because he was clumsy, you know? Yeah. And, you know, one last thing on uh, Hacksaw Higgins, and I'll get back to the match. Hacksaw Higgins, when he came, I think, to Florida, I want to say while he was in Florida or right before he got there, he went to New Japan. So when he showed up, I was like, oh, wow, this guy's been in New Japan. So you're assuming, you know, 1986-ish, uh, if he's in New Japan, the guy has some sort of ability. And then he gets there, and you see him on TV, and you're like, uh, okay. Anyway, yeah. A little bit uh, expectations not completely met there. So uh, getting back to the match. The other thing I liked about the match, Barry, Kawada's facial expressions when he's doing his comeback. Yes. yes. Oh, my God. They were amazing. Like, he gets this look on his face, and, of course, he's missing his forefront upper teeth. And he, like, starts screaming at, at uh, Masawa, like, you know, like, come and get me. And he does it a couple times. 
just watch for the facial expression because it's really, you know, they talk about what, when wrestlers are, are being taught and in school, you have to show fire. And Kawada does such a great job of showing fire. Now, last thing I want to say about uh, this match. One of the things I really loved and appreciated about All Japan is the way that when these guys met, whether it was Masawa Kawada, whether it was Masawa versus Kobashi, each match was special. And you know why? Because they didn't wrestle each other six times a fucking week. Yep. You know, one of the one of the things that really bothered me about Flair uh, towards the latter part of the '80s was that you know uh, whether it was Flair against you know, Dusty Rhodes or Sting or Luger, uh, Ricky Steamboat, they were wrestling every single night in, in a, you know a different town. So like. Yeah, it was great seeing Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat on a pay-per-view or Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes uh, on a clash or a pay-per-view or something like that. But, you know, if, if you sit there and, okay, it's time for the clash of champions, let's just say. And it's, oh, it's uh, Ric Flair versus Dusty Rhodes. And you sit there and think, oh, this is great. I just saw this match in my town like four days ago. So how is it special? Well, let me tell you something. When Mitsuhara Masawa and Toshiaki Kawada met, it was like literally they would meet once a year, maybe twice. And did they meet in tag team tournaments or in tag team situations? Yes, they did. And they were always great. Yep. But Baba, one of his brilliance as a promoter was his ability to take the issues between his main event guys and make them so special and keep them away from the fans, except for particular times of the year. And then, boy, when they happened, they never failed. You never saw, as Barry said, you never saw, oh, it's Mitsuhara Misawa and Toshiaki Kawada. Oh, wow. That match really disappointed. That match wasn't really that good. No, they were always going to be fucking great. Well, you know, if you put these guys in a six-man tag, it was going to be great. But when they were singles, you know, against one another, not only did you remember the match, you can re you could remember the date. You know, it, these matches were always special, Barry. And that's one thing that Baba did that I just thought was brilliant. Yeah, and you know what? We had Savio Vega, which was a – we had so much fun with uh, Jacques Rougeau two weeks ago and Savio last week. But one of the questions I wanted to ask Savio, and because of time I didn't, was what were your thoughts on Bob as a wrestling promoter? I've said it. I think he's the greatest wrestling promoter in the history of the business, and yeah. it is – yeah. Yeah, I mean, as far as consistent product, he had his own way of doing things, you know. His way of establishing stars was a very slow build, and you had to expect that. You you know nobody was going to be brought in, and you know you talked about the way that they put Rhodes and Murdoch over. Literally, when they got to the promotion, nobody was doing that in all Japan. You were getting build up, and you know like, but once you got there, it was oh man, you were there, you were, you were yep. there, you were over, and you were going to stay over as long as you know you possibly could, as long as you did what you expected you to. Tremendous, you know, promoter and. Um, the way that uh, he handled the booking was never a guy that, you know, you were going to sit there and look at your check or your pay and go, oh, wow, I really got kind of fucked by this guy. You know, he was one of those promoters. If he told you you were going to make this amount of money when your money came, that's the amount of money that you got. And he was, you know, and I will say big show wise, maybe Inoki put on better big shows, quote unquote. But you know what? With Inoki, there was always that chance that, well, you were expecting at the end of the tour wasn't going to be exactly what you got. 
you know? Yeah. And I'll tell you also with Anoki too, he would also mix some shit into some of those cards. So yeah. he did have some great matches with Baba. You were going to get max one comedy match. And that was usually Baba in there. Yes. Just so he can come out. The other thing I liked about Baba, and he did this for so many years, clean finishes. Every oh, yeah. match had well, a clean. No, no, no. I will say the clean finishes started uh, about the time. Let's see. It was either when Choshu left to go back to New Japan. Uh, maybe that's when he started doing it because, of course, right. Choshu had such an impact on New Japan's business going back there. And so, you know, a lot of the stuff they did in the early part of the 80s into the mid part of the 80s. There were they were known for double countouts, and it was very frustrating how they would have to book stuff because you would always, you know, I think the fans w when they would get to two count, they go yeah 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 yeah, and then they go outside the ring and it'd be like oh, and then right. if you watch matches when they guys would get thrown back into the ring, the crowd would usually pop because we're like oh we're not going to get a double countout again, you know so, <laughs> exactly but, uh, you know so no, but he definitely uh, transitioned and grew as a promoter uh, and adapted, which you know. A lot of promoters uh, in wrestling could not and cannot do that, and he showed the ability to do that, and he definitely deserves all credit for that. Okay, Barry, now next I want to ask you a question that I saw posed on Twitter. I mentioned it to you. Uh, Barry Rose, I think if we've established one thing here on this show, it is that Barry Rose loves him some In-N-Out Burger. Is that a fair comment, Barry? I love In-N-Out Burger, absolutely. Yes, okay. So I am going to, right now, I'm going to send on our messenger page, tell me when you've got it, a post that someone uh, put up, is In-N-Out Burger overrated just because of what people expect at this point? In other words, is it simultaneously, as this person posted, the most overrated fast food place on earth, while, while at the same time being a great restaurant? <sighs> Well, it, it, it certainly could be. How about that? It's, which may be the cheap way out for me, but yeah, <laughs> That's it's a double count out right there. That, <laughs> double count out and then no, and then no DQ match. That's exactly what that was. So let me, let me quantify in and out burger. I, I think the food, so a lot of people, and this is where I really want to be fair. A lot of people that have had Whataburger and in and out burger are, are actually loyal to Whataburger. There is a, a loyalty there, doesn't have that passion of a cult-like following that In-N-Out Burger and let's say Publix, Publix also has a cult following, but In-N-Out, In-N-Out hits on a few different areas. And, and this is where In-N-Out I think wins. The food is good. The fries are for some people a real bone of contention. They don't like the thin fry. I feel I'm fine with the fries because it's different than the other fries that are out there. So I like that. It's a, and it's not soggy to me. The worst thing a French fry could be a soggy. So while I get that they're thin, whatever, get them animal style. They're great. I think the burgers are always good and consistent. The shakes are good. Sodas are good, all that. But in and out burger hits on two other points as well. One, the price point is really good. You can get to an In-N-Out Burger, Jeff, for the same price you can go to a McDonald's. And the the quality is head and shoulders above the rest. Where In-N-Out wins above everything else is the level of service that you receive in a fast food restaurant. It is similar to Chick-fil-A in that it's, you know, whenever you say, can I get this? Thank you. My pleasure, right? 
we've all gotten the my pleasure from Chick-fil-A if you've eaten there. In-N-Out Burger, I think, eclipses uh, Chick-fil-A when it comes to service. So it's not the kind of service that we're, you know, you go to Wendy's and no offense if anybody works for Wendy's, but it's like a fucking felon is waiting on me at Wendy's. You know what I mean? Like they're, oh, yeah. yeah, no, they don't. And I, what I, what I really should say is there's, there's zero care consideration or respect given to diners going to Wendy's, at least the ones I've been into within the Philadelphia market, they, they almost like don't want you there. And, you know, so it's, it's a shame you get to in and out burger and it's, they're friendly and sir, how are you today? And it's all this. And, and that makes a difference. You know, you almost feel appreciated for your $9 that you're spending to wrap all that up. I will always be a fan of in and out burger, but it's going to be hard for me to knock Whataburger. Is that fair? So let me just tell you, since we were talking about food uh, earlier, uh, my wife the other night on the way home stopped off at a uh, Moe's. Uh, you familiar with Moe's Southwestern Grill Bear? Welcome to Moe's. Yeah, exactly. She went there and she texted me when she got there and she said, oh, uh, I'm, I'm in a line. I said, oh, okay. And so then uh, 15 minutes went by. I'm next up to be served. And I'm like, you know, it, you, you didn't go to like a, a you went to a fast food joint. Why is it taking so long? Sure. So she gets home and she tells me that the problem was, and I'm going to tell you, Barry Rose, that you will not be shocked to hear this. The Moe's at uh, 6.30, uh, probably on a, on a weeknight, had two employees working, the person on the counter and the person in the kitchen making the food. And my wife said, that was the problem. And wow, that is a problem. And I'm not putting shit on Moe's, uh, you know, guess what? The food was like very meh, you know, but are we really to be surprised when you have one guy in the kitchen making all the meals while the other poor guy on the front counter is having to explain to people why it's taking so long? You know, I mean, that's just, you know, you, you really can't expect, you know, greatness stuff. You go to a place, you know, where you're, you're going to have, you know, 10 employees behind the lines, you know, four or five cooking and you got one guy working the drive through three or four people up front and then there's a manager. Of course, you're going to have a quicker experience. You're going to have probably better food, but you know, you got to feel for these people like the two guys working the Moe's that night bear. I got to assume that probably one of them is a manager as well, because probably I don't know fair, who, else, yeah. who else would put up with that shit. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly, hour, yeah. Hourly employees going to be like, you're not paying me 12 bucks. No, that's that's so, we, we, we did uh, yeah. something a couple a uh, couple weeks back where we talked about uh, what was it a Burger King where they they put up on the outside sign. Uh, Screw this place. We're leaving because, yes. you know, that they they were expecting the employees to do that. And, you know, so you can't hear something. Here's something crazy. And uh, and you're so I will tell you quickly about Moe's. Moe's was at one at one point, one of my favorite restaurants. That's about 15, 20 years ago. And uh, Moe's. The, I used to go to when I lived in Orlando, I would go to two in Orlando and they were great staff, great food, great vibe. You know, you could go in and the place had a great buzz to it. You know, the Joey bag of donuts. Right. And the, the John Cocktoastin, which is a line right out of Fletch, which I love. And then Moe's within a year or two. So somewhere around 2007, 2008, 2009 became mostly all franchised and you could just see the quality of food slip, the quality of service slip. You could walk into a Moe's and it was a 50, 50 shot. If you were going to get welcome to Moe's, which was what their signature was. So that was a shame, but there were, you know, I used to get, I used to get nachos, but I would get them deconstructed 
with almost, and they, you know, you would think they would hate me, but the guy I was friendly with them, but they would, I would build my own nachos. It was like a two hour dining fucking experience for me. Cause I would sit there and make each nacho perfect. And I loved it. And the last time I went to Moe's, I'll say two years ago, just, you know, I, it, it was, it, it's Taco Bell, but I like Taco Bell better. Yeah. Okay. So now uh, we're starting to round the corner, head for home, but a couple of things before we do. All right. I'm going to throw a little surprise at Barry Rose. What? He's not ready for this, folks. Right now, the balls are tangling just a little bit as he's going, what the fuck is he going to do? What the fuck is he going to do? So our very own Barry Rose recently recommended something to me over the broadcast airwaves. Barry, you know, you and I, we love a good documentary. Mm. Barry Rose, yesterday I sat and watched Val. Oh, about the life of Val Kilmer. So, real quick, before we throw it to Barry for his thoughts, because I definitely have thoughts on this movie, which, by the way, was tremendous. It's on, uh, what is it on? It's on Prime. Val Kilmer, for those of you who don't know, eh, Val Kilmer, he was in Top Gun. Uh, he was in Heat. He was in Tombstone. I'll be your Huckleberry. Uh, you know, all those iconic roles. But Val Kilmer, from the time, literally, he was like 10 to 12 years old, was making home videos and was making videos of his life and just with the anticipation that he was going to make something of his life. The guy studied at Juilliard, uh, the the drama school at Juilliard. Uh, Barry, do you remember who his girlfriend was while he was at Juilliard? I thought this was pretty funny. I don't. Who was it? Mayor Winningham. Mayor, that's right. Mayor yes. Winningham. And yeah. uh, Mary Winningham, who's in, the, was she in St. Elmo's Fire? Or she was, was she in Breakfast Club? No, she was St. Elmo's Fire. She's okay. been in a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was, a, you know, she was yeah. always the, the girl. And she's a really good actress, too. Yes. Uh, but so anyway, uh, really good film. But so he documented all of this literally up until the time the movie came out. He has a warehouse that he has all the footage whether it's on video cassette, on reel to reel, of all these movies he's made, and you get to watch Val Kilmer's life unfold as he shot it. And it, you know, he was taking selfies 25 years before people even knew what selfies were. And, you know, just, uh, uh, and one of the things that's very poignant is seeing a guy, uh, let's be honest, Val Kilmer at his height when he was making like heat. Uh, and you know, those kind of, he was a damn good looking guy. I mean, there's just no two ways around it. And now he apparently has gone through some sort of throat cancer. He uses one of the things where you push the button and it's like, hello, I can talk like, you know, but it's very sad. And he's, you know, gradually beginning to lose his looks and wow. But what a great, interesting film. If you're any kind of fan of Val Kilmer, of his movies or of the process of making movies, Barry, tell the folks what you thought about this great film. Yeah, so this was one that I was waiting. I, I was always a big Val Kilmer fan, and the movie Real Genius, which I believe was his second movie, uh, he did something called Top Secret, which came out in 1984, which is a lot of fun. It's a goofy comedy, and then made Real Genius, which is also a goofy comedy of sense. But I was always a big fan, so I was waiting for this movie to come out. And first off, great movie, absolutely. Interesting to see what he was like during when he was making movies and Val had a reputation as being difficult. Yeah, and he I, addresses that. Yeah, he does. And I, I don't think, I don't think he did. You know, I think he addresses it and he, there's maybe 
in his mind, justifications on why he was difficult. But I think I think especially on the island, the island of Dr. Moreau, and there's footage of him being difficult. It's it's you know, but look, this this was a big fucking movie star. Right. And as we know, big movie stars sometimes flex their muscle. What I really liked more, and this is probably no surprise, Jeff, the relationship he had with his kids. Yeah, absolutely. No. So with his son, his son is almost his best friend, or maybe is his best friend. And his son son narrates the movie, by the way. Son narrates, because it is hard to understand Val when he speaks. Yes. But his daughter is is protective and you can see it. She's like super protective of her dad. And I just love that. I, for some reason that really just struck with me about how much she loved her dad. I didn't love Joanne Wally, uh, who was his ex-wife, Joanne Wally Kilmer. I thought she kind of came off a little Hollywood to me, uh, even though she's British. I can't tell you Val came in my restaurant in New York. I, Jeff, I was a manager and this was after his marriage to Joanne Wally Kilmer. He came in with the young girl. It was in the middle of the summer. And I remember he was wearing shorts. They were, the restaurant was quiet. There was maybe another table at most in the restaurant. And these two sat at a table and didn't take their eyes off of each other all night. Like if he could have boned her on the table, he would have. <laughs> so, like it was, you could see it. It was one of those, you know, he was definitely going to go home and take care of business. But they really were into each other. But I, I thought this was a great documentary because, A, it was really poignant as well. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm at that stage of my life where if something touches my heart or my soul, it, it means a lot more to me. And I, I really walked away with this. But I thought some of that footage was l- really incredible. And I thought the footage from the island of Dr. Moreau, which uh, was a Richard Donner, that was the director. No, it was, uh, I don't know who the original director was, but John Frankenheimer. John Frankenheimer. He was a great director, but he came on the set and apparently he had uh, the marching orders from the studio, just wrapped this fucking thing up. Right. And, you know, Brando and Val Kilmer, they're, and one of the things you really find out about Val Kilmer in this movie is he really considers himself an artist and right. he does a lot of like painting and stuff like that. That's what he's doing now. Uh, he like has a studio uh, in, out in California that he uh, invites, uh, you know, young artists, whether they're photographers or painters or sculptors or whatever. And because uh, he really wants to encourage that that aspect. I, I think one of the things I really liked, besides what you mentioned, his relationship with his kids and stuff like that was, you know, um, uh, First of all, if you're a, a fan, not just of Val Kilmer movies, but just in movies in general, one of the things that's really interesting is you see a lot of behind the scenes footage where it's just people being normal. You know, you see guys that he made, uh, you know, Top Gun with and uh, you see uh, there's some uh, behind the scenes stuff from when they were making Tombstone with uh, Kurt Russell goofing around with them and, and stuff like that. And uh, he uh, he talks about uh, his experiences on different movies like Heat that that I was a big fan. He talks about what it was like, this will perk up the ears of Chris, that's for sure, of what it was like to be Batman and why that experience, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil it, but why that was a difficult experience for him. What there was, uh, uh, and it had nothing to do with, he didn't like the director or anything like that. It was, uh, I'll just say it has to do with the wardrobe. <laughs> was one of the reasons right. why he liked it. <laughs> but one of the things that's very touching is when he goes back and he tells a story about his family and he had two brothers. Uh, now I'm trying to remember very, was he the youngest of the three brothers? 
I don't remember. remember. Okay. Well, I think it was the oldest brother who his parents had, had separated. There was a a riff in the marriage. His parents separated. Uh, They lived. uh, I can't remember what the name of the city was, but it was somewhere in the, you know, the Los Angeles general area, you know, Hollywood, uh, you know, some like small uh, city that uh, is not immediately recognizable, but it's in that general area. And apparently the house, because his dad had money, the house they bought was the house that Roy Rogers had owned. That's right. Yeah. So they grew up, you know, like they had a lot of land. They had a pool and stuff like that. And his brother, who was the one that originally got him in, interested in movies, his brother was like, uh, you know, a kid that would walk around with a, a camera. And, he, you know, you see stories about Steven Spielberg when he was a little kid, how he would make like little home movies. And, uh, you know, and, stuff, and that influenced him when he became a director later on. And that's what Val Kilmer's older brother was doing. And the parents separated, and one night his older brother, who at the time I think was 15 years old, was in their jacuzzi, had an epileptic seizure, nobody was watching him, and he drowned in the pool. And, you know, geez, it's been probably 45 years ago, and you can see when Val Kilmer talks about it, it still affects him. And he makes a point of saying, my life was never the same after my brother died. Yeah, And it affected his father deeply. His father became completely removed from the family and uh, did, would never talk about it because the father felt responsible because apparently the father had forgotten to give him his, his seizure medication that day or something like that, or had been laxed about giving him the medication, and it really impacted him. So, uh, you know, I, I know Barry feels this way. If you like to try a different look, you know, uh, try a documentary, but if you're a fan of movies, not just Val Kilmer movies, but other actors movies, you know, guys like that, that are in this, uh, you, you have, um, Sean Penn, Kevin Bacon, Nicole Kidman, people that he's that he's made movies with, they're being shot on his little home movies as he's talking to them, you know, and it's a really interesting look, uh, at the making of movies in Hollywood. And this guy who for all his, um, the, the claims of him being difficult, he's really, you really see him as just a guy. You know, and now he's a, a guy that has had to deal with the the throat cancer, and he's never going to act anymore. He does not look like Val Kilmer in 1995. That's a fair statement, would you say, Bear? Yeah, absolutely. He's de- definitely hit the wall uh, because of some of the health issues that he's had. He uh, his they show him at a, uh, a comic con, and you can see physically that he's uh, he's probably. 150, 160 pounds, Bear. Would you, that would that be fair? Yeah, no, he doesn't. Yeah, he's he's rail thin at this stage. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But you still see ultimately the affection that he had, uh, not just for his his uh, two kids, but for his family, for his mother, uh, and for his brother. It's really pretty touching stuff and uh, a real interesting look. And I can't recommend this movie Val uh, on Amazon Prime enough. So. Barry, now we are getting ready for the final stretch. I have a little story for you, Barry. All right. So Mrs. Bowdrin and I, we have the Kia Optima. It's uh, 2017 or whatever. So I go, uh, my wife tells me, oh, you got to get the oil changed on the old Kia there. So uh, we got a, a garage up here where we take our cars to get the oil changed, the wheels rotated, that kind of stuff. Uh, the tires rotated, that kind of stuff. And uh, by the way, Travis, you're going to love this story. Uh, so uh, Travis, of course, being a mechanic, so I took the car in because my wife said, well, you know, when I hit the brakes, 
my uh, my oil light comes on. So I don't know if it means I'm really low on oil. I said, okay. So I took it into this place. And, you know, like I said, I've been there before, have built up a certain amount of uh, trust. You know, it's always important to have trust with your mechanic. And so, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So I take it in and the guy goes and he he pulls out the dipstick and he goes, yeah, this uh, says uh, it, it just, there's no oil on the dipstick. Oh, there's the guy that's underneath in the, I guess they call it the bay where they, you know, unscrew the uh, the oil pan. And uh, so the guy goes, okay. And so he he does it, lets the oil come out. And he goes, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, take a, we'll take care of it. Go ahead and take a seat in the waiting room. So I go in the waiting room and literally like five, 10 minutes later, the guy calls me out. He says, uh, yeah, I'm going to tell you that uh, you need to go to the dealership for this problem. And I'm like, uh, it's just an oil change. What's the problem? He says, well, here's the thing. He goes, you had about a half a quart of oil in your oil pan. And he goes, uh, and your car should not be using up oil that way. And he goes, and I'm going to mention this to you because I've had about three Kia Optimas in here over the last week or two that have all had the same problem where they're burning oil. Now, when I say burning oil, I don't mean like, you know, uh, you pull out of your driveway and there's a big puddle of oil in you. No, it's like the engine is burning oil off faster than it should. And he said, what I did was I put three quarts in for you. He goes, but you need to take it to your dealership so they can, you know, put it on the diagnostic machine and see why it is just doing this because that's something I can't do. And then Barry did not charge me for the oil. Oh, you know, which to me, guess who's going back to that place again and give them the business, you know? So I said, Oh, okay. So I uh, discussed it with Mrs. Baldrin, made the appointment out at the local Kia dealership. Uh, I bring it in there and they said, okay, uh, uh, we will, uh, you know, and I had an appointment. I actually show up early for the appointment. Okay, uh, I said, uh, do I need to go home? No, it'll take a, a, an hour and a half. <laughs> uh, by the way, uh, the first place I told you about, I get my oil changed there. I'm in and out literally maybe 15 minutes. Okay? Sure, all right. But, of course, the Kia dealership, hour and a half. I said, okay. So I sit down. I'm sitting there going over various and sundry stuff on the phone, uh, listening to a podcast or two. And then finally she calls me, uh, she says, uh, okay. Now, now mind you, I had explained to them what the situation was according to the other mechanic. Okay. And I said, he told me this is a problem with Kia Optimas. Have you had this situation before? Her response to me, are you the original owner of the car? Like, what the hell does that have to do with anything? <laughs> right. I'm the owner now. I had, and the answer to that is yes, I, I, I bought the car originally. And I said, but I, I don't understand the question as to why it matters, whether or not, you know, and, and so, uh, and of course we don't have, you know, most cars, you got the hundred thousand mile, uh, uh, overall on your uh, motor, uh, thing. And yeah, we're like 80,000, something like that. And so, uh, so now I come there and it's time to settle our accounts. Okay. We, uh, did the oil change and stuff like that. Now here's what you're going to do. And this is the part that gets good, Barry. What you're going to do is you're going to, uh, we change the oil in your car. Which, by the way, the guy, like I said, uh, like literally like less than a week ago, put three whole quarts of oil in, but they changed the oil out. I'm sure they, when they changed it, they looked and went, wow, this oil looks really new. Right. But anyway, <laughs> she says, uh, what you're going to do is you're going to uh, drive this car for a thousand miles. Then you're going to come back because now your car has authorized Kia products in it. Ugh. The authorized Kia oil filter, the authorized Kia oil and you'll come back after you've uh, run the car for a thousand miles, and we'll put it up up in the old uh, diagnostic machine. They couldn't put it on the old diagnostic machine, Barry, because of course I didn't have 
authentic Kia products in the car, uh, vis-a-vis the oil filter, the oil, whatever, you know? So uh, I said, oh, uh, okay. Uh, so uh, am I going to have to pay for that oil change? And she goes, oh, no, no, that oil change will do free. Uh, but here's your bill. So Barry, let me just ask you, there in uh, your uh, local Plymouth meeting uh, area, uh, that kind of thing, uh, eh, what do you pay for an oil change when you take uh, uh, the old uh, Rose car there, or when you're taking it in, maybe you do it for Mrs. Rose or, or for Zach or what, who's ever driving the car needs an oil change. You're taking it down to your local garage, uh, whether it's a, you know, Jiffy Lube, that kind of place. What do you generally pay for an oil change? Jeff, in the most bizarre coincidence, maybe of all time, I have an appointment at nine o'clock tomorrow to have my oil changed and to have my car inspected. So at the, at the dealership or at, just a- I'm doing it at the dealership because I get uh, one of my we, there's two inspections for Pennsylvania and one of them is free. So and I also I uh, I had like six free oil chains when I got uh, oil changes when I got the car. I think this is my last one, I believe. And they're they're pricey because it's a dealership. So uh, of I, course, yeah. they I think it's closer to either 40 or 50 dollars for an oil change. Fifty five dollars for yeah. that oil change. So, uh, hey, by the way, Travis, hey, let me know how much you guys charge for an oil change. Because, uh, you know, I, I was assuming you go to a garage or a Jiffy Lube, eh, 25, maybe 30 bucks. Right. You know, and, and so and I, of course, understand that anytime you go to the dealership, first of all, number one, you're going to wait longer. Number two, it's always going to be more expensive. So then when I got the bill and I got in my car, I was looking at the bill. So it said $28 for labor. And wow. I'm like. Say what? No, no wonder it took long. They needed to justify that hour, right. <laughs> you know. And then twenty six dollars for parts and labor. So I was charged twenty six dollars for, uh, you know, what a four or five quarts of oil or whatever, you know. So yeah, that was. Uh, so now I have to wait for that thousand miles to uh, slowly. Tra- <laughs> and this is this is the car that we hardly ever use, you know. Right. And it's just that my wife happened to take it to work that one day. The oil light flashed, and uh, thank you, Kia. Thank you, Kia. Thank you. Yeah. So Barry, you about ready to go for the old go home. Oh, one last question, Barry. Sure. I just want to mention this. Barry, have you watched the uh, Dark Side of the Ring episode about Luna? I have not. No. Oh, I have. And uh, Barry, as you know, and some of you that listen to this show may know, I uh, I knew I knew her as Angel, uh, Angel Vashon, because I knew her when she was married to uh, to my friend Tommy. And uh, if you watch the the special or the episode about her, uh, there was pictures shown uh, of a of the wedding uh, in the uh, with Tom, his family, with Angel. And there was a group of people, uh, and it was a it was a party that was well attended by the South Florida wrestling community. Let's just say that. Uh, so uh, I want to say that Angel Vashon, as I knew her, I didn't know her as Luna. I knew her as Angel Vashon. Uh, she was nothing but nice to me every time I ever had a, any kind of interaction with her. I would never shit on Angel on her memory or anything like that. But that being said, Barry, allow me just to say that there are other people that may have been featured on that fine episode. I'm just going to say maybe some people's memories have been skewed by the what? time. That's all I'm going to say. And, right. you know, it's the old George Costanza line, Barry. It's not a lie. If you believe <laughs> there you go. And uh, yeah, let's just say there might be a few people that are living that lie and uh, have uh, have decided to perhaps enhance uh, their own sense of self-worth, their own sense of what they meant in the wrestling business 
And on that note, for our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, and my uh, co-host, Barry Rose, I am Jeff Bowdrin. Sometimes they call me the booker. Barry, before we do, uh, real quick, I'm going to squeeze you in there. Give us one uh, time on the uh, the CWF Legends Fan Fest. Yeah, absolutely, too. I And I think this is, what, second to last before. Uh, yes, we are making yeah. our plans now, buddy. We're making our plans, getting really excited because it's happening. So it is happening November the 6th, taking place in the Tampa suburb of Lutz. It is the Marriott Residence Inn at North Point, Cold Point, something like that. Suncoast uh, Parkway, I don't know. Suncoast Parkway, which is the major uh, the major road that goes through there. But it's the Marriott Residence Inn in Lutz, and uh, we're real excited. You've got uh, two-hour Q&A and cater dinner. Jeff, just, just finalized the menu with the hotel. We are going a little – Jeff, this is for you. I didn't even think about this. Valid? I get, didn't I get a message? No, that, I didn't get that from you. So Penzer, Penzer reaches out to me and he goes, what's a Rose Compoyo? And I was like, Dave, really? Like, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like, what is a Papa's Fritas? Really? So anyways, we're, we're having, we're having a Rose Compoyo, which is chicken and rice. Uh, I've actually eaten that at the hotel before and it is out of this world. So we just finalized it, but it's a two hour Q and A and catered dinner. So you get, a Q&A with the Rock and Roll Express and a dinner. And who's moderating this, Jeff? Uh, I can't remember the individual's name. I, think I just want to know. Sir. What, what, thank you. What are Ricky and Robert going to say when, when they see the Orozco boy? <laughs> They're going to look at that and They're go, like, what the fuck is yeah, that? <laughs> yeah, there's the bologna sandwiches, yeah, right? Exactly, for the bologna uh, Yes. Other guests that will be in attendance, Jerry Jarrett, who almost never makes uh, FanFest appearances ever. He'll be doing the Cup of Coffee, which is the private event only for ultra ticket holders. That takes place from 11 a.m. to 12 noon. And then we have our after party, which is uh, the grappler, Len Denton, also known as the Dirty White Boy. He's bringing his one-man show, and he'll be doing the after party. And that's about 90 minutes. Uh, it's a lot of fun. He's actually had a lot of success with that. Real excited. Other people that will be there. Barry Horowitz, guest on with us, I think, three times he's been on with us. Barry Horowitz will be there. Bugsy McGraw will be there. Legendary Jerry Briscoe will be there. The Saint uh, one of your favorite uh, masked managers of all time for the state of Florida. This uh, maybe the only masked manager ever in the state of Florida, but the saint will be there. It's not Excalibur. Uh, it's the it's, saint. It's the saint. Exactly. And uh, and then coming in all the way from Portland, Top Gun, who was a big star I was in say Portland. Kevin cut there for a second. Eh? Yeah, Kevin, Kevin. I sent Kevin the video of Top Gun and Kevin was deadly silent about it. So I do know that he listens to our podcast. So, Kevin, I do expect a message now, but tickets are still available. You can go to Eventbrite, punch in CWF Legends 7 taking place in Lutz. Uh, you can also check us out. We have a Facebook page, which is CWF Legends Fan Fest. You can also get information in the Brothership. We haven't plugged our Facebook group in a while, which is the Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Isn't that the most popular Facebook group that we can think of by a rather large margin? Oh, that's right. I I yeah, I don't think I don't think it's even. I said it. I didn't stutter. Yeah. No, our art. Look, it, it's it's very obvious. Our people are passionate and our people support what we do. And as Frankie Seacrest posts at least once a week. He will support us in whatever we do. He will support our advertisers because that keeps the show going for us, ladies and gentlemen. So big, huge. But Jeff, I'm super fucking excited. We have not as a group 
been together for it'll be two years and uh it'll be that we saw each other in two person. years ago two years ago oh, oh. i know right yeah lucky yeah. for you i'm still as good looking as ever actually so. you're you're better looking my friend i've seen the photos you've gotten better uh, looking with age thank you appreciate that appreciate that and on that note by, by the way barry let me just say as a go home I posted it, but if you did not hear, my wife came through with the super birthday gift for me. Yep. Oh, by the way, is today my 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 birthday, Barry? Oh yeah, it is. Today is your birthday. Two tickets: Notre Dame, Georgia Tech in South Bend at Venerable Notre Dame Stadium in November. Wow, I can't wait. Thank you so much, honey. And on that note, sweet Lou, take it home. Breaking Kayfabe with Daltron and Barry is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.